Yeah, we're all about gifting food here for Christmas. I think that's the best yes. way to make it meaningful and you can get your kids involved. It's not expensive, especially if you're making things like bread. It's such a great holiday thing. We bake pretty much from the 1st of December all the way through December. Honestly, you're giving more when you're doing that. It's easier just to get on Amazon or whatever and order things and then be like, I got it done. Check, check, check. But this is such a meaningful gift and then it nourishes someone. It takes a lot of your time and your expertise. It's something that a lot of people don't know how to do. So it's a really special gift. My name is Lisa, mother of eight and creator of the blog and YouTube channel Farmhouse on Boone. Join me as I share with you my love for creating a handmade home from scratch cooking and a little mom and entrepreneur life along the way. Welcome back to the Simple Farmhouse Life podcast. I just finished talking with Ashley Turner of Turner Farm, and I'm about to share that episode here with you. And so many great ideas for Christmas gifts, um, edible Christmas gifts, beautifully presented, sourdough tips. We talked about her farm. There's a lot in this episode that I personally learned even after doing sourdough for however many, 13 years now-ish, somewhere in there. So much good information, inspiration. Even if you don't love sourdough, we'll get your wheels turning on some handmade gift ideas. If that's uh, something meaningful you want to present your family with this year. Overall, lots of good information in this episode. Ashley, well, thank you so much for coming on again. We were just discussing when I had you on last. Yeah. But for those who are new to the podcast or maybe didn't hear that interview, tell us about you and your farm, your story. I know that I've, my sister, one of my younger sisters follows you really closely and she's always telling me things like, <laughs> look at this, look at this. So, you know, I, I, I know you have a unique story to share. Yeah. Um, so we live in Nova Scotia, uh, right on the Bay of Fundy. And we have a small farm. We farm Wagyu cattle and we have some horses and some chickens. But yeah, we moved here six years ago, about six and a half years ago now, I guess. And we were just on two acres of land. So we bought our house with very little intention to kind of do what we're doing now. And you know, we slowly picked away over the years at accumulating more acreage behind us. It was really like we were really fortunate in that the gentleman that owned the land behind us was willing to sell it. And, you know, when all the COVID stuff happened, everyone was kind of like unloading land in Nova Scotia because everybody mm -hmm. was buying land here. So we kind of lucked out. We were able to to buy some land behind us and, and we sort of grew the farm there. So so yeah, so that's the story of the farm. And then uh, I know we're going to talk about some sourdough stuff today. So yeah, but yeah, that's the story of our, our farm. Yes, in a nutshell, that's the very small version of the story. Where you live is beautiful. I think that's like one of the most remarkable things about it. There's just, it's it's just different than what we're used to seeing where I live. It's it's really cool. Where are you guys again? I know... We're yeah. in Missouri and oh, okay. we're having a really weird heat wave, even though it's November. I know this is coming out in early December, but it's November and it's, it's, it's like literally hot right now. <laughs> really? Oh, it's not like that here. Yeah. It's really cold here right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could imagine. I, I don't think you get heat waves in November. We don't usually either. This is pretty weird, but it's kind of it feels like it hasn't even really been fall yet. I mean, it's been fall, the leaves are off, but it's been 
we've had lots of nice weather, but I'm, I'm literally sweating. So it kind of sounds nice to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So another thing that you are known for over on the Instagram world is sourdough. You share these beautiful videos where you make all kinds of creations. My uh, audience loves sourdough. And as we're going into the Christmas season, there's a lot that you can do, a lot that you can bake. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Tell us about your experience with sourdough. I believe you have some sourdough offerings as well. Yeah, I started baking sourdough uh, you know, years and years ago, and then I uh, started teaching it kind of just in my kitchen to some women locally here. And then when everything locked down, obviously, I wasn't able to do that anymore. And so I started offering some classes online. And so that's kind of like where I got started on Instagram with sourdough. And so I offered classes online. And now I have a cookbook out for sourdough and myself and uh, my partner, Lizzie, we have a subscription. So we wrote the book together. Now we have the sourdough subscription and I have some other classes and stuff that I offer online too. So, and I just started actually just started a YouTube channel. So I've been sort of like dabbling in my world. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, you do more long content stuff on there. Don't you? Yeah, I do. I do a lot more YouTube than I do Instagram. I think it's reversed for most people that I have on the podcast. I think most people do Instagram more and then do like a, like kind of YouTube on the back burner. Mine's the exact opposite. Yeah. Well, I think there's a really like a lot of potential with YouTube, especially with long content. And I, and I think that a lot more people are craving that, especially when it comes to like baking and cooking and sourdough, you know, it's hard to put tips and tricks into a reel. And so this is sort of like an opportunity for us to share mm-hmm. more yeah. more stuff on there, you know, outside of the subscription. And then also we're building a house. And so I've been wanting to share some stuff about that on there and just kind of how the farm is growing. So so we just started that and I'm excited to see where that goes. And yeah, so so we're I'm sharing a little bit of my favorite holiday recipes on on the YouTube that I've shared Ooh. in on Instagram in the past, but yeah, but not in long form. So I'm excited to do that. Okay. So is that Turner Farm over on YouTube? I'm always looking for new channels to follow. So I'll absolutely love that, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Turner Farm. Cool. Cool. Well, that's that's exciting, especially right now, whenever we're all looking for some of that inspiration. And I personally feel like the consumption of YouTube feels more on pace with my life. Like I, I delete the Instagram app from my phone often because I just cannot take it in in a way that feels <laughs> not stressful, but I'll sit down at night and watch YouTube. So that's, yeah. I think why I'm so yeah. into creating content for YouTube is I genuinely love YouTube. And I wish more people would come over from Instagram because there's so many people that I really love following, but then I miss out because I delete the app off my phone like most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. It's a really fast paced app. I find that you're consuming content very quickly. Whereas with YouTube, it's slowed down and you kind of can absorb a little bit more information from, from the content creator. So I'm not very good at it yet, but I'm really excited to kind of get into it a little bit more. Yeah. I'm excited to to watch that. Okay. So you mentioned that you're building a new house. Tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll get into some of the specifics on the Christmas sourdough recipes. Yeah. So our house, uh, where we sit on our land, it's sort of like a bottleneck. So like the, the house that we're on is just on like a thin property and then the farm sort of spreads out in the back. And so 
when we started moving the cows back further on the land, we kind of decided that we wanted to be back there with them. So we're building a house back there. We're hoping to either maybe rent this one out as a farm stay for for people traveling here. And we're building our cattle barn back there as well. So so we're kind of in the thick of that. And it's been, you know, already a bit of a journey. I'm sure it's not going to be, you know, I'm sure it's going to be stressful. I've never built a house before, but I'm sure it's going to be stressful. But um, yeah, yeah so, we're, we're I that. Either, but... so I'm hoping that we're in there by before the summer next year. But yeah, it's on the same farm. It's just a, it's just back a little bit further than where we're at now. Cool. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that unfold over on YouTube. That's going to be awesome. All right. So tell us, let's just dive into the whole sourdough for Christmas thing. I have a lot of things in my brain. I want to make some wreaths with the dough. I've been experimenting a ton with sourdough pastry dough. I actually today made this mushroom tart, which was just sourdough pastry dough with some cheese and some mushrooms. Sourdough to me is cozy, so it really does lend itself. So what are some of your favorite Christmas, that's a loaded question, but we can, you know, we can unpack it after that. Some of your favorite sourdough Christmas, fall, winter recipes. Yeah. So Christmas, and I'm sharing this on my YouTube next week, is the chocolate sourdough. And I know you have a chocolate sourdough that you make too. And I, oh yeah, it's my favorite. And I put like, I'll put like Lindor chocolates in it. Sometimes I put candy canes in it. It just depends on kind of like what we're what we're doing. Yeah. So that one's my favorite. And that one, so that one I'm sharing next week. Um, I've shared it on Instagram before too, but I really, really love the chocolate sourdough. I feel like it's really cozy. I feel like it's like very satisfying. Mm -hmm. It's not super sweet. So it, it works. And then the wreath, the cinnamon wreath, uh, that one's in our book and I've shared that on Instagram too. I, I love the cinnamon wreath. So I do the cinnamon roll dough and then I make it into the wreath. And I just feel like that's such a fun, I'll pack it up in like little boxes with like a ribbon on the bottom, like a bow and Mm -hmm. give it as gifts. And I just feel like it's such a nice, just it's, it's like perfect for every occasion around the holidays. So I love that one. Yeah. Yes. So with the cinnamon roll wreath, are you rolling tight the dough like you would a cinnamon roll, then cutting it down the middle and then twisting it? And then shaping it into a wreath. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So you can do it two ways. You can cut it into three and braid it, or you can cut it into two and just twist it. I've done it. I actually feel like when we did the book, I did it in threes as a braid, but I actually think I prefer it as the twist. It seems to be a a little bit neater doing it that way, but I, we've done it as a cinnamon one and we've also done it as a cheese one too. So for any same dough, but just with cheese. Mm. Okay. So you mean like a savory at first I was thinking you meant like a cream cheese, but you mean like a savory kind of thing. You could do, you could do cream cheese too. So what we do is like, if you've heard like Borzen style cheese, so we spread the Borzen style cheese and then we do like, oh, um, yes, yes, yeah. And then like an Asiago and a cheddar and then roll it up like that. It's so good. Okay. So for your cinnamon roll dough, I'm curious do you do the long fermentation and do you add eggs? This has been the conundrum for years for me because I am comfortable adding eggs the night before, kneading it into the dough, letting it rise eight hours, 12 hours with the eggs at room temperature. But a lot of people aren't. And so they try to add the eggs afterwards and it can be done, but it's really, really tricky. What's your solution for this? So I actually, I've done it both ways. Um, I have a I have a recipe that doesn't have eggs, but I, I really have very 
I have no problem at all doing eggs the night before. It's kind of like yeah. people always ask that with the pa- like the fermented pancake dough as well or batter. It's like you put your milk and all of that mm-hmm. in and you leave it to sit on your counter and people get really nervous about that. But it, anything that's being fermented, I feel like it really, it, it doesn't spoil. There's no way that it can actually go bad while it's rising mm, because it's it's changing the consistency of the ingredients that's in the dough. Like I guess if you sat yeah. eggs in a dish, but it's, it's just changing, right? So it's fermenting, it's rising, the gluten is developing, everything's breaking down. So I have very, I don't have any concerns adding eggs. I can't even imagine trying to add them after. <laughs> I've never done it like that. It's, it's really hard. And I've, I've, I put in my website the way to do that just in case there's people who just cannot get past the whole eggs overnight thing. And then I get so many discouraged emails and pictures that Mm -hmm. show like eggs on top of dough and they say (laughs) it it absolutely will not. And it really will. You have to work with it. You have to like scrape it up from the bottom and like keep turning on your dough hook. But I like what you said about, I've never actually thought about that. And now I need to go back and add it to all my blog posts because the same thing applies with, I make a homemade mayo and it doesn't last very long because it has raw eggs in it. But then mm-hmm. I learned that if you add some sauerkraut juice or kefir or yogurt or whey, that it ferments it and it'll last for weeks and weeks. And so why would that not be the same thing mm-hmm. with sourdough? It's fermenting it. It's preserving even the eggs, which mm-hmm. for whatever reason, like I know these things, but it did not occur to me that scientific you know, explanation there. Yeah. Yeah. I think anything that's changing form, like, especially like if you're adding milk or whatever to a recipe, anything that's changing form and like in the, in form of fermentation, I think you're safe, you know, and that's why we can leave things out on the counter that are fermenting for so long. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I've never, ever thought about that, but it's interesting that people have a, have an issue with the egg thing. You've never gotten comments like that on Instagram. I'm sure you have. No. Huh. I've got I've gotten them I've gotten them with the pancake batter. I've gotten okay. them with the pancake batter because people get really freaked out about putting milk, milk overnight. But to me, if like you know you're fermenting, it's the same as if you're making yogurt or if you're making certain cheeses. Like those are always left mm-hmm. out at room temperature. Anything that's being fermented, um, you're changing the like initial constitution of like the ingredient. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's not going to go bad. Yeah, so, that's a really good point. Yeah. Now, what about, I know you use raw milk and I know that Lizzie uses raw milk. Have you had anybody have issues with putting out like one of the recipes that sits for extended periods of time with pasteurized milk? No, I've done both. Right now we don't have a cow in milk. So we are drinking pasteurized milk and I, you know, I've done all of our recipes with both raw milk and pasteurized milk and I've never had an issue either way. Cool. Yeah, I'm with you. I've, I have been doing sourdough and fermentation so long that the things that freak me out, like are so, it's just, it, it would take a lot with food because I've learned how much you can do that is against like what traditional, if you were looked at like the CDC website or something. And so I usually don't think of these things until people say things They're like, how could you do that? And I forget that that's a thought. But yeah, so many of my recipes have lots of eggs, Totally, like a brioche dough or a babka. Have you tried doing the babka? It's really similar. Yes. Yeah. And we've done a brioche too, like a sourdough brioche and like, yeah, I, I but again, I'm with you. I've never, I've, that's never crossed my mind really. So it is funny how people get weirded out by certain ingredients. 
yeah, we're still having to recondition our minds with sanitation and, or, you know, certain things being okay that we grew up not being yeah. okay. So for example, like milk kefir, I will leave that on my counter for yeah. five, six days and it's always fine. Sure. It's very sour, yep. but it's not bad. And it's, once you've done that enough times, you're like, oh yeah, no, these things can sit out and be just fine. Well, and that's like sourdough starters. You know, when I left, I accidentally, when I went to Utah to see Lizzie just recently and I forgot to put my sourdough starter in the fridge. And when I got home, it was quite gross on the top yeah. and people were losing it. I bet. Because I was like, well, you just scoop out the bottom and like feed it. So people got really weirded out by that. But, you know, you can just peel that stuff right off the top and keep on going because it yeah. just ferments back into it. And that's, you know. So, yeah. So what what were, what were the steps for getting your starter back to a robust place after leaving it out for I'm assuming maybe like a week? It was about it was about a week and a half. So yeah, about ten days. It was out okay. um, on the counter, and I had sent a message to my husband when I was in Utah, like, "Hey, can you put that in the fridge for me?" And he just forgot and didn't uh, and didn't do it. So it was sitting out. Oh. <laughs> but, yeah. I think what happens is if your starter is strong enough, then, you know, it didn't grow mold, but even if it was going to grow a little bit of mold, you're still, you're still fine. So I, I think I feed my starter a little differently than you do in that I always take a little bits out and put it into a clean jar. And so in this situation, I find that's really helpful because you can sort of like get past all of the stuff that maybe went a little bit bad on the top and just get to the good stuff underneath. Just like take a little spoonful of that out and feed it into a clean jar. It took a couple days of doing that, like feeding it. Uh, then I came right back and I made bread today and it, it and it's fine. It's working fine. So yeah, it doesn't take very long to come back to life. Yeah. And don't you think it's that, that mindset that's very scared of leaving things out that also so quickly throws away a starter. I find that people have a really hard time establishing a starter and they say it never works for me. I can never get it going. And I, I realized after digging deeper with a few questions that re in reality, they threw it away way too soon. Mm -hmm. So many people throw their starters out. And I, and I just did a story about this on Instagram the other day because I got lots of questions about the starter because I showed it and people were saying, well, no, mine looked like that. And I threw it in the garbage because it's unsafe and it's not good bacteria. And I think that people have like a really kind of like misconceived notion of like what good and bad bacteria is. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it's, it's neither or it's just, you scoop it out and you feed it and it, and it bubbles again. And it is what it is. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not like good or bad. It just, it just is. So yeah, I think that people are throwing out their starters, even with a little bit of mold on it, you know, it's still fine. You can still, you can still work with that. I think people are getting really scared of it. And unfortunately as a result, it's taking them forever to get these starters going for them to make bread and they're wasting so much flour doing it. Mm -hmm. Yes. I have found the very same thing. And there are occasions where somebody understands all of that and still, for whatever reason, their house... I have found a few people who it seems like for whatever reason, they cannot grow a starter in their home. I don't know what's going on there, but for the most part, they're mm -hmm. very resilient. They the colony of yeast and bacteria will establish themselves and they will regulate out. So over time, as you continue feeding it, even if it's gone, like yours went a little bit south for a little yeah. bit there, you're able to bring it back and it, it'll just slowly over time recalibrate, if you will. Yeah. And I think sometimes, I don't know their situation, but sometimes people will have like water softeners 
or if they live in a place that has like chlorine in the water, sometimes that can really affect your sourdough starter too. Or if they're yeah. like certain types of water, that sort of thing. Yeah. One lady, yeah. we think the reason was that she diffused too many essential oils. Oh. I don't know if that's accurate, but we got to that. Like there was nothing else that we could think of. Interesting, I guess. I know that if you I don't know. start or somewhere like where you have other ferments, sometimes I can't remember if like the starter affects the other ferment or the like cheese or something. Like you can't do it in the same room, but I've not made enough cheese that I can really speak candidly to that. Well, I will say that I have made a lot of cheese for a short amount of time. I made a lot of cheese and I never had any cheese get the glossy holes that mean that it's gone bad mm. and my starter never went bad and I ferment kefir every day and I ferment sauerkraut. Um, that's kind of the extent. I have other things I do here and there, but those are what's what's always going. And I've never had any issues, but maybe that is, again, just me being like really slow to throw things out. Yeah. I want to interrupt this episode really quick to tell you about a sponsor that I love, Azure Standard. This week, my Azure Standard, my monthly order is coming. The way Azure Standard works is it's a co-op, basically, where you and several other like-minded individuals who prioritize health and quality products pool your order together for discounts, for more direct sourcing, and you meet at a location to your Azure standard drop to get these goods into your home. So for example, I have two different Azure standard drop locations within 30 minutes of me. Both would be pretty convenient. I could also start one in my own area if I wanted to. Just to give you an idea of some of the things that I source on Azure standard that I feel are a really good price that are staples in my kitchen. I got an organic 25 pound bag of all purpose flour. I ordered wheat berries for my mill. I ordered animal feed for our chickens and our dairy cow. So much fresh produce. Azure Standard on their website, you can go through and see what is currently on sale. Usually that will have to do with what is currently in season. So I think I'm getting carrots and apples. I'm trying to remember what else is on my order this time. So much stuff. I planned it to where hopefully I'll have to barely go to the grocery store between our homestead and my Azure Standard order. Not for, you know, just like a couple times in a month because of how much I planned to put on my Azure order. They also have spices, any bulk grain that you can think of, household products, oil, honey, just about anything you can think of, but with a natural and organic version. You can also get organic dairy like cream, sour cream, cream cheese. Those are some common things that I like to put on our order when our cow isn't in milk so I can find better deals and better sourcing. You can head to azurestandard.com to see where a drop location is near you. There's drop locations all over the country, so likely one very close to you. And use the code SIMPLEFARMHOUSEWINTER10. If you haven't tried it yet, this will give you 10% off, which on top of already having great deals because of buying in bulk and having to be a co-op with other people, you also get that additional 10%. I forgot to mention cheese. I love getting organic and raw cheese and butter on Azure Standard. Again, the code is SIMPLEFARMHOUSEWINTER10. Go to azurestandard.com to check your drop location and order. That's A-Z-U-R-E standard.com. If you aren't familiar, Thanks again to Azure Standard for sponsoring today's episode. 
Okay. So some more wreath ideas. Do you, have you ever added other fruits? Now with the babkas, I have found, because it's a very similar process where you take a soft enriched dough, you add something, roll it, cut it down the middle and turn it and then just put it in a bread pan to rise and bake. That's what you do with babka. I have found that it's kind of difficult with like a fruit filling, mm-hmm. even though they're beautiful when you get them to work. Have you found that or do you have any other variations? Um, yeah, I've done cranberries and I've done apples, like, like, but they have to be chopped so finely in order for it to really work. And I've done raisins, which I guess isn't really fruit, but okay. But I've done, I've done like the dried fruit yeah. and, um, and apples uh, with apples. It's just really important that they're added at the very end because it can affect like how the dough kind of like sticks together and I have, they have to be chopped super, super tiny, but it's worked really nice. It's been like a beautiful flavor with the apples mm-hmm. and, and, and the raisins. Yeah. So with the cranberry, if you're putting it in like a roll situation, are you cooking them down with sugar or in a cranberry sauce type of type of thing? Or how are you processing the cranberries? I'm just chopping them and putting them right in like, and letting it kind of bake oh, in. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. With the sugar and the cinnamon. Ooh, and then yeah, it's really nice. And then you just kind of get like a little bite of tartness, like for, mm-hmm. and then you don't have to, like, if you bake it down, I find it gets too like soupy and then it, and then it can be hard to roll it up. So if you just, yeah, you just toss them right in there, then you kind of just get them dotted throughout your wreath and it's really nice. Okay. So you're rolling out your dough, sprinkling on top some diced up or maybe chopped in half or something, um, cranberries, and then rolling it up. I think that's probably where I've gone wrong is I've made things with almost like a homemade jam first. Okay. And then it it can be done. It's beautiful, but it definitely can be very messy. Yeah. I've done it with like an apple jelly uh, before and cheese. So I've done like the cheese wreath, but I've added like an apple, like a spiced apple jelly. So it's sort of like sweet and cheesy and Mm. that's good. But again, it's really messy and it's kind of hard to keep it all together. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of making smaller wreaths and maybe gifting them. Mm -hmm. Have you done any other baked gift ideas? Smaller reads would be nice. I've done the chocolate loaf smaller. So instead of making two loaves out of it, I've made four. And then like, they're just like almost like little mini chocolate sourdough loaves. Like bowls? Yeah, like little oh, bowls. Cute. Yeah, so that's cute. The wreath, I've never done that smaller, but I really like that idea. I've gifted it like as a large wreath yeah. in, a, in a box, um, oh. but I've never done it as a smaller one. Yeah, like I put it in like a big box and then I put like a bow at the bottom. So it's like cute. actually looks like a wreath. Uh-huh. It was really pretty. But no, I, and then like cookies and stuff like that. But no, other than that, I haven't done, I haven't done much else for gifting. Yeah. Other bread. I've done, I've gifted yeah. bread. Yeah. Everybody can appreciate that. So with your mini chocolate bowls, how are you baking them? Are you doing them on like a um, stone and then putting steam in the oven? Yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and you can do it so that you proof them. Cause a lot of people are like, well, what do I buy for a banneton basket? Because the banneton baskets are, you I just like, use a bowl. I don't know about you. Well, so what you can do is after you've already proofed it, then you divide it up. Okay. okay. So you proof it and you're like, I proof like for two loaves, I have my banneton baskets. And then once they're ready to bake, I cut them in half and I reshape them and then I bake them. So okay. you don't have to have like, like, you know, four or five or six different bowls going. Yeah. You just have your big one and then you 
slide it up right before you bake it. So you shape it and then are you letting it rise again or you've already done the second rise? So does it need to rise again or does it deflate at all in the shaping? Not really. So for me, what I try to do, I put it in an oval banneton. And then when I'm ready, I cut it in half. So like I proof it, go through the whole proofing. Mm -hmm. And then right before I'm ready to put it in the oven, I cut it in half and just like shape it into a bowl. Okay. And then score it and put it right in the oven. Okay. I need to try that because I've done bread bowls and I just put a whole bunch of little, just like soup bowls, small soup bowls and shaped them that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is just easier because then you can just put like, you know, I do a cold proof. I'm not sure how you do your proof, but I usually do a cold proof. So it just, it's less things to put into the fridge. It's just like two things. Yeah. That was the thing. I had a bunch of those in the fridge. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was a bit of a deal. Although I did do like, say I I was doing eight or something. I think I was doing eight because I have a large family, but I did like four bowls on the fridge shelf. Okay. Then put a cutting board yeah. And then four more. So, I mean, but yeah, your way does sound a lot easier because I needed to line each one too with a tea towel, but yeah. you don't have to get a bunch of little Bannerton baskets. <laughs> Although you could, I've seen those at thrift shop. Yeah. They're really cute, but I, I just feel like it's way too much work. <laughs> yeah. That does feel like a lot of work. So what about the boxes? Where did you get those? Do you have a good source? Cause that seems like a really fun gift for like, even in addition to another gift, just like to bring a hostess or something. Yeah. Uline. Uline has some really good, like they're almost okay. like, like cake boxes, I guess you would just pick whatever okay. size you want. And I had some here, I can't remember where they were from, but I had some here just left over. So I just use them, but you can get them on Uline. So you just go and you find cake boxes and whatever size you want. You could probably also get them on Amazon. I feel like Amazon might be cheaper. Maybe in lower quantities. I don't know if Uline is, if you're wanting more bulk, but even if you just pot them once, put them in your basement and then for the next several Mm. years, you can pull out one of your boxes. That's such a really good idea. I had not thought of actually packaging in that way. And so many things with gifts, you know, it is the packaging. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's that almost more than the item, how it's presented to make it feel like it's a real gift. Yeah. So I've been wrapping, I have a tutorial on Instagram on wrapping your sourdough in parchment paper and then tying, like you can tie like little ribbons around it and gifting it that way. And that's, really pretty. Mm -hmm. I find that presents really well. And then you don't have to get anything special. You're just using like brown parchment paper, even white parchment paper, and then wrapping it up. So it's like really rustic looking. Yeah. That seems like a really good upcoming YouTube video idea for you. Might put you on subscribers. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) All the ways you can do. People love homemade gifts. People love on YouTube, particularly that idea because it feels more meaningful it doesn't feel like consumerism. And so I don't know. I think that's a good, that'd be a good uh, idea. Yeah, We're all about gifting food here, like for, for Christmas. I think that's the best way to make it meaningful and you can get your kids involved and you know, it's not expensive, especially if you're making things like bread. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just think it's such a great, a great holiday thing. We bake pretty much from the first of December all the way through December And yeah, we love it. Honestly, you're giving more when you're doing that because it's not, and and obviously, you know, I don't make all my own homemade gifts, so nothing against this, but it's 
easier just to get on Amazon or whatever and order things and then be like, I got it done. Check, check, check. But this is such a meaningful gift and then it nourishes someone. It takes a lot of your time and your expertise. It's something that a lot of people don't know how to do. So it's a really special gift. And then it doesn't clutter up your house whenever you're done. Exactly. So it's a win all around. Yeah. Yeah. My grandmother always gifts us like baskets of preserves. She makes her like million dollar relish and her pickles and her beets, like, you know, the classics and then her molasses oatmeal mm-hmm. brown bread. And it's like, it's been a staple and I learned how to make it actually. And I purposely don't make it because the nostalgia of her giving it to us at Christmas time, I like save it for Christmas. I don't, I choose mm-hmm. not to make it. That's always been like my favorite gift and tradition is getting the basket with all the stuff in it. She gives a little tea towel and she gives us all bread. And I just think it's so nice. And how neat that you remember it still for like all these years. It's something that you've always remembered. There's a taste associated with it too. So you not only have like the visual aspect, but then how it tastes, it probably just feels like Christmas to you to have a tradition like that. So you can start that for somebody else when you start doing these kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I've been like in my head daydreaming about how I could take a brioche dough and not really roll anything in it but maybe braid it and then add some kind of topping like coarse sugar or something else to sweeten it. Have you tried something like that? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that would be amazing. I love brioche dough, but I never make it. I think, do you make yours with a mixer? I do. Yes. And it it takes forever to come together. And I get in trouble about that all the time too on my blog because people will say it never did. And you have to almost have the professional KitchenAid mixer or something like a Bosch or not just the um, little tiny dough hook thing that comes with the standard KitchenAid. And then you need to set it on about medium and walk away, which I know KitchenAid recommends not doing. And so people have shared that in all the sourdough groups, like don't actually do this. I haven't had trouble, but it does. It's a very wet dough with a lot of butter, a lot of eggs. And so it takes a lot for it to come together. Yeah, I completely agree. So I don't own a mixer. And so I, when we started making brioche for our sourdough subscription and we were coming up with a recipe, I borrowed a friend's mixer and you know, I thought I always like try to encourage people to make bread with their hands because, you know, yeah. you don't have to have fancy equipment, but you really do for brioche. Yes, <laughs> you like, do. You really yeah. have to use the mixer. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really tricky without the mixer. mixer yeah. Once we move, because we don't, I just don't have space in the house right now for more appliances. But once we move, I'd really like to get a mixer and I'd like to kind of get back into the brioche because the buns and like all the things that you can make with that dough are are so nice. Yeah, it's such a soft, like once it finally comes together and pulls away from the sides of the bowl, which takes again forever. So be patient mm-hmm. if you feel like it never will. Yeah. It actually will. It is this like buttery, soft, smooth, glossy dough that you can do so many things with. Like you said, you can make the buns, like brioche buns, and they're extra soft. You can do a babka with it. You could even do a cinnamon roll with it. And then I'm thinking about dividing it into three parts, making this really long braid, putting it in a wreath, maybe brushing it with some egg wash, and then topping it with something coarse or for a savory one, you could do uh, mm. everything or something. But anyways, I'm trying to think of all, as you're saying these boxes, I'm like, oh man, there's so many yeah. really beautiful things to do. Yeah. Yeah. And brioche is such a simple recipe once you get it. Like once you have the, you know, you have the mixer and you just put everything in. Like it is such a simple 
thing to manipulate into all these different things. Like once the dough has kind of come together. So I do love that one. Um, yeah. I just don't make it very often. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable without the mixer, but there, like you said, are so many things you can make very easily without a mixer yeah. by letting the dough hydrate and then doing stretch and folds or coil folds or whatever. There are just endless amounts of things that you can make. Have you experimented with the pastry dough, laminating the dough? <laughs> so we did French pastry in the subscription last winter and we did a whole month on French pastry and I was determined to make a croissant recipe, like a sourdough croissant. Yeah. And that's about as far as I've gone for pastry. I mean, I guess that's not okay. even really technically pastry, is it? No, it's not. But It's basically the same thing. I will tell you that I started with the croissants and I felt like that was so much harder okay. than the way I'm doing the pastry dough now. That's helpful. Yeah. The croissants like... <laughs> They drove me insane. And now I'm like, you know what? I would just make the pastry dough and then just shape those into croissants. I probably wouldn't do the croissant way anymore. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. I haven't really dabbled much further into the pastry because when we did the the French pastry month, like it took me so long to figure out that recipe. And then I was like, I'm never making croissants again. <laughs> like, yeah, it just that's how I felt. Nuts. I felt the same way. <laughs> yes. I seriously felt the same way. I'm like, how is this even worth it? Like, I remember we went to shortly after I was, or while I was in the process of testing this, which I had to do like 10 times, we went to New York City, my uh, mom and my sister and two of my daughters. And I went into a couple bakeries and I saw their croissants and I was like, you know, I was like, oh, you're awesome. Like, you know, like I felt a newfound respect. I was like, you make oh, yeah. croissants, like go you. Like, that's really something. Look at those croissants. Like, you're yeah you're really and like skilled. in mass amounts yes that's how I feel too I completely yes. have a new appreciation for people who do it because I I have very little interest yeah. in in I I was the same as you like I was just like a whole month and every time I would get to the end and it takes forever to get to the end and you like okay butter all over your oven yeah <laughs> yes yes and it would be like okay I think I really got it this time and they rose mm -hmm. and they look really good and sourdough is a whole other beast because yeast is a little different when you're making croissants yes it just puffs up a lot better and it makes it a little more airier but with sourdough like there really is a skill to kind of like getting to the end anyway and it was just always just a puddle of butter and it was so infuriating so then when I finally got it and then I taught it in the subscription after that I was like never never again I'm making never making these again yeah you guys have fun if you want to do it but never yeah yeah so the pastry dough it's it's really easy to come together so it's just you know like the basic dough ingredients I think yeah there's eggs in it um flour milk anyways it's I have the recipe on my blog, but then you let that rise for four to 12 hours. Then I put it in the fridge. And then when I laminate it, I just do two folds. Oh, so I do nice. the first fold, put it in the fridge, roll it out, do the second fold. That's it. And I've never had any trouble. I've made the little Danish pastries. I've made a pastry braid. Today I made it like a pizza dough. I've put it on top of mm. a uh, like chicken pot pie. And so now it's my new favorite thing and it's not intimidating like okay. the croissants. So and you, I'll try it with croissant. I'll try like cutting it and shaping it into croissants too. Because is it, do you do the butter block? Do you have to do the butter block for that too? Or no, you just laminate. You do the butter block. Okay. You do the butter block, but it's just less. I feel like when I did my croissants, I was trying to do so many more folds with it to really do it the proper way. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So this is just one. That's nice. Yeah. So this one is, it's still the butter block. 
And I don't like this last time I did it. Um, I made them. I made it Monday night, and then it sat in the fridge. And then today I made the pizza with it, or like a tart, really. Oh, I didn't measure anything. Like the first couple times, you know, I, I measured how big the butter block was, and I measured how big the dough was. And this time I'm like, I'm just gonna make a butter block big enough to fit, be an enveloped inside of some dough. Yeah. But now that I've done that, and it feels, it doesn't feel near as difficult with the two folds, and then it can sit in the fridge for. As long as you, it can sit in the fridge for like a week. It doesn't feel, it feels like I want to experiment with so many different things. Like it's very fun to work with. Oh, that's good to know. I'll have to try your recipe because I've been scared off of pastry after that experience. (laughs) I want to interrupt this episode real quick to tell you about one of my favorite sponsors. And that is Tubes & Co., Just this morning, actually, I got a text from my mom to our sisters, our entire family group. Who needs to place a tubes order? I need some new foundation. Anyone want to throw something on for free shipping? But I had already just gotten in my new order that I ordered a couple of weeks ago of my Tubes & Co. makeup. We all just love it so much. It has natural and organic, clean ingredients. Nothing that you have to worry about as you are trying to improve your health, cook more clean in your home. Sometimes we forget about skincare and our skin is our body's largest organ. So what goes on there can actually make its way in and affect our health. It's hard to find high quality products. You don't feel like you're sacrificing how you usually do your makeup or your skincare. When normally I feel like with brands that are cleaner, you get the cleaner ingredients, but you sacrifice kind of the quality, the feel. Not the case with Tubes & Co., I have the foundation, the eyebrow pencil, the mascara, the palette for eyeshadow. I also really love the skincare. So their moisturizers are really great this time of year. As it's getting colder, I need something to moisturize my skin. And I love their tallow balm because again, it's all clean, natural ingredients. Tallow from grass-fed cows. It doesn't just sit on the skin, it actually makes its way in. So just the whole thing. All their products, I've tried so many of them. Every single one I've tried, I have loved. Tubes & Co. is offering Simple Farmhouse Life listeners 10% off over on their website, tubesandco.com with the code farmhouse. Again, that's T-O-U-P-S and co.com. Use the code farmhouse to get 10% off. Tubes & Co. is a small family run, made in America company. You can feel really good about supporting and good about the ingredients that's going on your skin. Again, thanks to Tubes & Co. for sponsoring today's episode. Okay, so how have you, or what have you done, you and uh, Lizzie, with your books and everything, with sourdough cookies? This is something I've been going back and forth on, like, for years, and I feel like I finally now have the way to do it, but I'd like to hear how you do them. So which kind, like any kind of sourdough cookie? Just any, I kind of have a general idea of, you know, it's tricky because you're putting butter in something, it's supposed to be cold, but you also want the ferment for the Mm -hmm. health benefits of sourdough. And I found figuring that out difficult. Yeah, I know. So when we wrote the book, the fermented chocolate chip cookie recipe in the book it like lizzie almost went crazy (laughs) i thought she was yeah (laughs) i like i thought she was just going to toss the whole thing out because she was just she was done with it yeah she's like this is ridiculous (laughs) because what happens is when you're putting all of that in there and you're adding in your sourdough 
and then you're fermenting it, what tends to happen is it gets cakey. Like it almost, it, it gets fluffy and dry because it takes on yes. like the flour component of the, of the sourdough. And so what we realized is when we were making the cookies, we were, or when we were making the book, sorry, we were feeding our sour, or sourdough starters every day and discarding every day. And so our mm-hmm. discard was quite active. And so okay. it, your discard has to not be active. Like it has to be, mm. you know, the discard that's been sitting in the fridge for a while uh, almost. And then the other thing that we realized with that is you have to almost err on the side of completely under baking your cookies in order for them okay. to not get fluffy and dry. And it was like, there was such okay. a balance. Same with brownies. We We had this issue with the brownies too. It's almost like as soon as you go over that, ledge of like oh i don't think they're quite baked enough and you bake them a little bit more it's like then they've gone from these chewy yummy cookies to like fluffy and dry Mm, so that was sort of like those were our two biggest takeaways when we were when we were making them we still use cold butter we still let the dough sit but we then did an extended ferment in the fridge so same as like you would do for chocolate chip cookies you would let them sit in the fridge but you would let it sit in the fridge for quite a bit longer and you get that extended ferment for, for the cookies. But there are some cookies that you can't do that with. So like, for example, like we did like a shortbread cookie or like a, like the sugar cookies, like those types of cookies I find don't do as well as a fermented cookie. Okay. Yeah. So when you say extended periods of time, are you meaning like days in the fridge? And do you find that the health benefits of sourdough still happen with fermentation that's done cold? Yes. they ju- It just is it slower. So what I found, so I'm yeah. not, so I don't ever say, even with the cinnamon dough too, like I do an extended ferment for the cinnamon dough, but there's a lot of butter in that. And so when you add butter to dough, it, or any type of fat and oil, it can, you know, like, it can make it difficult to ferment. So it kind of like changes the way that it ferments. So I don't feel like it fully breaks down the gluten in the recipe completely because you're not developing the gluten, if that makes sense. So in a cookie, you're not looking for it to develop the gluten. Same with pie crust, if you leave that to sit. But it does, the, the discard in there, there is that element of fermentation and you're adding in something that is fully fermented into your cookies as well. And so you're going to getting the aspect of that too. So I don't think that there is a way to fully break down the gluten in a cookie recipe. Um, or at least I haven't found that yet because any cookie has a lot of fat added into it right. and sugar and sugar changes the way that things ferment, obviously. So it's like, it it almost prohibits the fermentation just a little bit. So it can never really fully break that down. But I definitely think that it helps to let it sit for quite a while. Yeah, that's kind of what I came to too. I've been where I make the cookies and then sit them in the refrigerator for extended periods of time. It's not perfect, but I'm with you. There's so little liquid component in a cookie by nature. It's mostly fat that Mm. there'd be no other way to do it. You can't there's no liquid to put in with the flour to fully ferment it before turning it into a cookie. And you explaining with the fat, making things rise more slowly. I don't think I ever, I never really knew that. And so I've noticed that like my brioche dough takes so much longer to double 
and I can leave it out on the counter for a really long time yeah. before it over ferments. Whereas like a really hydrated bull can over ferment in four hours if it's hot outside. Exactly. So that's like, oh, no wonder that's the case. I've noticed that's the case. Yeah. I leave it out longer because it's clearly the case, but I never really knew the science behind why. Yeah. So like even with like our, our nan bread recipe um, or the tortillas, where you're adding, you know, I put yogurt, my recipe calls for yogurt, and then my tortilla recipe calls for, for butter. And then both of those recipes have milk in them. Well, there's a lot of fat in that. So I can leave those, those things out on the counter to ferment for a really long time before I feel like they're too sour or too fermented. And I have, you know, this beautiful yeah. nan or tortilla or things like that. Whereas with regular sourdough, you really have to manipulate the dough if it's going to sit on the counter for an extended period of time. Okay. So do you have any strategies for that? If somebody is trying to say they really can't tolerate gluten, that's the reason they come to sourdough. There's a lot of reasons to come to sourdough, but if that's your exclusive reason and you're making these bowls and you find that you're, they're always flat, probably because they've been over fermented. We've seen it happen a million times. If you bake a lot of bread, what, what is the solution for that? How can you let a bread dough sit out for 24 hours without it over fermenting? So basically what I see most of when people are having flat dough is underdeveloped gluten and not necessarily over fermented bread. Okay. So when they make their leaven, so, um, and some people don't choose to make 11. Some people just have a large starter, but but if you can make 11, if you make it extra thick, so that when that goes into your dough, it just takes a lot longer to kind of eat through all the food, essentially. Your food is your flour, right? Okay. So when you're mm -hmm. making your dough, you're adding your flour and your water in with your leaven. And, and if it's nice and thick and active, it's taking a lot longer to kind of like work its way through all that, to develop all that gluten. Whereas if it's really soupy and runny, it, it, it works quicker and mm -hmm. you tend to over ferment or overproof your dough very quickly. Another thing that I find is really helpful is if you're going to sit your dough on the counter for a long time, you always have to be manipulating it. So you're always stretching and folding it or coil folding it and bringing it almost like back to the center. Like I, t I always call it like teaching it where you want it to be. So like if it starts to spread out, you're going to like pull it back into the center with the coil folds and you're going to keep like bringing it back into center and that builds that inner structure. I find with extended fermentation, how I like to do it is do a nice long bulk ferment where you're able to manipulate your dough. So maybe it's like five or six hours and then put it in the fridge. And if you want it to be really nice and fermented, leave it there for like two days if you want. Okay. So then you're like, yeah, you're, you, you're still fermenting. It's still, it's still doing its thing, but it's doing it a lot slower because you're in, it's in a cold area. And so it's breaking down those gluten proteins slowly. And then you're going to take it out and shape it and you're going to do your proof again as well. And it will do it again. So that's my preferred way of doing it just because I feel like if we just leave it alone on the counter, most people don't have temperature controlled houses enough that it doesn't over ferment without mm -hmm. us coming back and working the dough. So I like to do it that way. I like to work the dough for five or six hours on the counter and then put it in the fridge. Okay. So you are throughout those five or six hours stretching and folding pretty much throughout the whole thing to keep manipulating it. So it doesn't over ferment and you're teaching it throughout that whole time, as opposed to just like the first hour. That's right. So my trick for people 
is I like to do every half hour. And then if you come back after a half an hour and it hasn't fully spread back out in the bowl yet, then you can go an hour. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if it takes longer for it to kind of like spread out to where it was, then you can let it go longer the next time because it's it, basically what it's telling you is that I have enough structure to ferment longer by myself. And okay. so I'll come back to it every half hour. And then maybe the last couple hours, it's just twice, like every hour or whatever it is. So yeah, yeah. that's my kind of like rule of thumb. Okay. So with the thicker starter, it's taking longer. Do you feel like as far as the health benefits are concerned, you end up with the same result. It just happens faster. Or do you feel like there's more action on the gluten if you do it in such a way that you allow the process to be slower? So you are doing a thicker starter. You're putting it in the fridge. It's slowing it down. So is it getting through the same thing, just slower? That's my question, if that makes sense. So I find with a thicker starter, you have a more aggressive, your yeast development is more aggressive. So it's more aggressively developed your gluten in your dough. So even for you, I know that you feed a large starter, even if taking some of that out and adding some flour to it so that it gets really active and bubbly before putting it into your sourdough, like something like that. In my experience, it's, it more aggressively works in your dough to develop the gluten. Um, as far as leaving it on the counter, I've never been successful with high hydration dough, right, yes. leaving it on the counter with without manipulating the dough. So that mm-hmm. on a lower hydration, you could get away with that for sure, like like a 60% hydration or something like that. But anything with like 65 or over, I find that it really needs that like work from yes. from from you in order to kind of like do its thing. Yeah, I totally agree that any any time and for the for the uninitiated, if you're just still thinking about sourdough. The the hydration percentages basically just means like your flour to water ratio and the wetter the dough is without fat, if it's just salt, starter, uh, flour, Mm -hmm. and water, the faster it over ferments. And once you've over fermented a dough, you can turn it into a fry bread, but it's done as far as bread Mm -hmm. bread goes. Like you can't bring it back. And so that's why things are always edible. And if you're scared to start sourdough, I can tell you that I've never thrown anything away. We always will turn it into something else if I have a fail. And I still have fails to this day because I'll forget about things. Like I will put it on the counter and then I will put it in before bed and then I don't. And then it's fry bread. You know, do you have any other tricks for over fermented dough? So I've done it so that I've left it on the counter and I've gotten up in the morning and it was so over fermented. It was like exploding out of the bowl and like pouring out (laughs) onto the counter. Yes. So, and I was still determined that I was going to make it work. And so what I did was I put it back in the bowl and I coil folded it up. Like I made, so lots of like even oil on your hands or water on your hands so that it doesn't stick to everything. I coiled it Mm -hmm. up as best I could and I put it in the fridge and I let it get cold enough that I could work the dough and bring it back into the center again. And I actually was able to coil fold it enough that I brought it back into the center and I was able to make it into normal loaves of bread. So that's a trick. Oh, if yeah. you forget it on the counter, yeah, go back to your bulk ferment again, but do it in the fridge. So like put it in the fridge every half hour, pull it out, coil fold it up, build that tension back up again. And then, you know, sometimes it's it's too far gone. But in this situation, when I did that, it worked perfectly. So if ever that happens, you can kind of like restart it by putting it in the fridge and bringing it back out and like manipulating the dough all over again in a bulk ferment. 
Oh, wow. I had no idea. I thought it was just fry bread or nothing at that point because it feels so soupy and messy and after sometimes you've done it, that. But yeah. that's a really good thing to try. I'm sure I'll have the opportunity to do it. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I think it's like too far gone. Like we just turn it into pizza or focaccia or something like that. But yeah, yeah. sometimes, sometimes depending on the dough, it can work. <laughs> That is really good to know and something good to try. And for those, you know, who, who are discouraged with this, you do learn a lot over time with how stuff feels because whenever it's really cold here, which it's been a couple of weeks and then now it's hot, but I can leave dough out all night long, no problem on the counter and no, no, you know, over fermentation. Mm -hmm. And then when it's really warm, it can be three hours and it's hit that mark. So it's just something that you learn, you get the feel for, you get creative with how to still use things that you've messed up, but there's almost, you know, Ashley and I, we can talk to you all day with a lot of tips, which is really great, really helpful. But to some extent, you just have to get your fingers in the dough and just try it to really understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important to kind of like learn your dough. I always say to people like learn Mm -hmm. what it works in your house because everyone's house is so different. Yes, it is. And your house will be different throughout the year as well. Yeah. Okay. This has been so helpful. There's been so many ideas floating around my head. I have a lot of things I want to try now. Tell everyone where they can find you, follow along with you, get any of your sourdough offerings. Uh, you know, obviously plug your new YouTube channel. Yeah. So, well, so the YouTube is Turner Farm. I think there's a couple of Turner Farms on there, but it's a picture of our family. Okay. So it's pretty easy to tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Turner Farm on YouTube. And that's like, we're really excited to be on there. So if you are on YouTube and you want to go over and subscribe, like we would be super grateful. And, um, and then we also are on, uh, Instagram at turner.farm. And then all my offerings are pretty much linked in the bio on, on Instagram. So the book, the subscription, all those things you can kind of go on and and read up on the website. If if you're interested in learning more about sourdough. Awesome. Well, I'm sure a lot of listeners are. Thank you so much, Ashley, for sharing with us again. Um, this just might have to become an annual thing. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I would love that. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Simple Farmhouse Life podcast, and I will see you in the next one. Thank you.